To conclude his distinguished career, legendary Australian herbalist Dennis Stewart will present his final course, a professional extension in herbal medicine. Commencing on the 23rd of November 2019, this 12-day intensive course will be held over a period of 12 months on the New South Wales Central Coast. This will be your last opportunity to participate in detailed learning with Dennis, covering relevant, effective herbal prescriptions to treat an expansive range of conditions. For more information and to register, please go to lakespa.com.au. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today is Dennis Stewart, a clinical medical herbalist and naturopath who's been in continuous practice for over 40 years and currently conducts busy practices in both Newcastle and Cessnock, New South Wales, Australia. Referred to as the godfather of Australian herbalism, Dennis spearheaded a renaissance in Australian herbal medicine in the early 1970s. He established first and taught at the New South Wales College of Naturopathic Sciences and in the late 1970s founded the Southern Cross Herbal School and was a conjoint associate professor at the University of Newcastle from 2002 to 2007. He constructed professional examinations, course studies and curriculum for herbal training and education with the National Herbalists Association of Australia and he's a fellow and life member of the NHAA and also inducted into the Australian Traditional Medicine Society Hall of Fame in 2012. Now Dennis will offer his final postgraduate program called Professional Extension in Herbal Medicine, a diploma over six bi-monthly weekends on the central coast of New South Wales, commencing in November 2019. And I warmly welcome you to FX Medicine. How are you, Dennis? I'm very well, Andrew, and how are you? I'm very, very well, thank you. Good, good. More so for your teachings, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you're very you're very flattering. <laughs> I've said this to you, and, and, and I've given you homage about this, but um, I've also mentioned it in many podcasts when we're referring to herbal medicine, and particularly standardisation and the conundrums of that. We'd like to have a repeatable medicine, um, but the the danger is that we can, you know, look too far into one chemical thinking it's an active rather than a marker compound. And you um, have this beautiful sentence, which I repeat, saying that a glass of good red wine is not determined by how much resveratrol is in it. <laughs> so well, that's exactly right. <laughs> I continually thank you for that. Well, well the, the fruit of the vine, after all, is, is the product of a herb. And there's skill in the manufacturing of it as well. Correct, correct, mm. correct. No, look, I, I uh, stand by those um, strong principles that um, the preparations that herbalists have historically used have been uh, referred to as galenical preparations. And unfortunately, that term is not well understood today. Mm. Um, it's a term that was well understood within pharmacy uh, a couple of gen generations ago when pharmacy in particular uh, had galenical preparations. But galenical preparations, whether they be used by pharmacists or herbalists are essentially uh, herbal medicine preparations that are based on the entire herb uh, without any secondary processes that seeks to accelerate the uh, the uh, individual chemistry of any one entity within the herb. So it's best uh, to define herbalism, certainly as I've defined it and practiced it, as uh, an art, a science, a practice that is based on using an entity called the herb, which is a complex, uh, multifaceted entity and uh, can be interfered with by um, manipulating one or more of its chemical constituents and giving them uh, an accelerated level of importance. I think there's a great danger in that. Some would say that there's uh, a beneficial aspect in it. I've never found in my 40 years that one needs to depart from the traditional interpretation of the galenical preparation. Well, let's discuss this before we get into our topic for the day, because I think it's important. Of course. Um, of course. 
you know, it's important to prevent adulteration, for instance. So we need yes. certainly marker compounds to say that is the herb. Um, then we get into quality indicators, and, and this is a, a far greyer area. So what's your thoughts on that? Well, look, I think we have to be very um, very aware of the fact that um, the, the application of modern science and, uh, and chemistry is not something alien to the modern interpretation, definition, and usage of the herb. I see nothing wrong with uh, some of the testing that's done to confirm uh, the identity of a herb, and I see nothing wrong, um, in fact, in seeking to locate in the herb that you're using um, markers, if you like, that are important um, for the application or the action of the herb. We need to be cautious here, however, that we don't see these marker entities being the only uh, entities that are responsible for the action of the herb. They are important constituents that bring with them a lot of other substances which attenuate, which synergize, which work with, which accelerate or even modify the action of these so-called uh, necessary markers. Indeed, we've been led down the garden path, particularly with one herb, St John's wort. Yes. Uh, originally, it was just the herb. Then, of course, we yes. thought it was um, um, hypericin. Then it was hypericins. Then yes. it was hyperforin. Now there's yes. good research showing that the high hyperforin containing um, phytopharmaceuticals don't work and that it's the low hyperforin ones that appear to work. There's particularly the evidence-based one, of course, the ZE117 extract, um, yes. and that it may indeed be inclusive of the flavonoids, which are part of the herb. So where do we go from here? Well, it, 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 uh, it's coming around uh, back to the original understanding of, of the Galenical, that uh, we lose sight of the concept of the Galenical, the herb in its entity with no single active principle or no single chemi uh, chemical being responsible uh, for the activity of, of the herb. The herb mm. is an entity. The, the, the Americans, some of the Americans in their writings refer to herbs as medicinal foods. Now, I, I warm to that to a degree because it then uh, takes the herb out of this area of uh, um, uh, just seeing it as a, a phytopharmaceutical and puts it back to where it belongs. Yeah. Really, it's a, it's a food with a medicinal uh, property or activity. And just as we don't dissect our foods um, to explain their, their efficacy or their benefits and, and extol the virtues of individual constituents in foods, so, in my opinion, we shouldn't do that with our herbs, which, in a sense, are just an extent extension of this food concept. In a sense, mm. they are a medicinal food. Mm. I, I love what you say in that part of a chef's skill is how to choose uh, high-quality foods, but it gets harder, though, when we're preparing a herb for medicinal application, though. Well, remember, the, the liquid representation of the herb, mm. particularly in the preparation known as, as, as the fluid extract, purports to be nothing more than a preparation which embodies in a liquid form all or as many constituents from the original crude herb as possible. It's nothing more or nothing less. And this is why I've always emphasized that the one-to-one the, the -one fluid extract is essentially a preparation which purports to represent all that was in the original quality of the dried starting material. What are the lessons that we need to learn about the care and the preparation of herbs, the mark, the, the decoction, you know, all of the processes involved in manufacturing? Well, again, again here, um, it's not as sophisticated as, as many people think. For years, I taught to my, uh, to my students a subject called manufacturing and prescribing of herbal medicines, and we did two-day seminars where we uh, took the dried herb and we took it through all the steps necessary to convert it into particularly the one-to-one -one liquid extract. It, it's not rocket science. Um, it's very simple and basic uh, technology. All that one has to be aware of is the appropriate uh, menstruum or solvent that is needed to best extract the herb, the uh, techniques associated with extraction, i.e. maceration, which is essentially the soaking 
of the dried herb in a non-specific amount of uh, menstruum for a period of time, then the placing of that uh, substance into a percolator and the allowing a further menstruum to go through the column of the macerated herb and to be, at the end, concentrated, uh, if, if necessary, concentrated, to give you that one-to-one relationship. And a lot of people <laughs> tend to think that in the manufacture of the fluid extract, um, that, uh, and particularly the one-to-one fluid extract, that it's, uh, it's a problem because heat is applied to it. Well, we need to realise that in the actual percolation, the extraction process historically used to produce the one-to-one fluid extract, in fact, a disproportionate amount of the final liquid extract has never, ever been subjected to heat. And the small amount that is concentrated to bring it up to the one-to-one strength mm. um, is usually, um, these days, done under vacuum. So, in fact, no active right. is, is lost. And if any active is lost, it's so insignificant that in the context of things, in my opinion, it's not worthwhile worrying about. So... Um, what needs to be done by a lot of younger practitioners today and even manufacturers is to get back to the basic principles of extraction, which are still available in, in good literature, and um, and see that uh, that it's not that sophisticated. Get yeah. back to, to basic simples. And the good thing about it is, uh, and you've heard me talk on this before, the British Herbal Pharmacopoeia, of 1983. Now, people say, why 1983? Because it was a landmark text that was produced by doctors, herbalists, pharmacists, and pharmacologists. And what that text did was bring um, herbal medicine into a standardized pharmacopoeial form. And the good thing in that text is in the monographs for the herbs that are called up in that text, which embody most of what we use today, the actual solvent or strength of the menstruum is called up uh, as the the solvent or menstruum to extract that particular herb. Right. So if one is ex- if one is extracting, say something like, um, or say heartsease, um, the pharmacopoeia would tell you that it's one in one in twenty five percent. Now that means it's a it's a one in one fluid extract that has been extracted using a solvent appropriate to the simple chemistry of the herb which is basically 25%, which is essentially an aqueous solvent, a small amount of ethanol being used primarily for preservative purposes. There's no rocket science in this. Right. What about um, the use of different amounts of alcohol to extract different um, okay. different actives, if you like, or different components of the herb? Like, for instance, uh, calendula, the more resinous components come out with a higher Correct. alcohol. Yeah. Correct. And th- this is why... Um, historically, um, some herbs have been shown to be better extracted in particular ways using differing uh, solvents or menstruum, depending upon our understanding of their basic chemistry. Uh, so if one is if, if one is using uh, herbs that are essentially alkaloidal in nature, one tends to move up the, the ladder as far as ethanol is concerned because we know that in herbs like hydrastas or golden seal and other alkaloidal herbs, that the the, the alkaloids, which in that in in, in a small section of herbs uh, are predominantly the active components, that they are better extracted uh, and in fact only extracted if one uses a matching solvent that drags out, if you like, those chemistries and takes them into solution. If one were to extract them just with water one would get probably a very diminished level of the of the chemistry of the herb. So our, our knowledge of plant chemistry um, is it does not run against all that we're saying about the galenical. What it does, in fact, is give us greater knowledge to be able to harness the historic action of that galenical um, and put it into a liquid form that best represents the historic benefits of the herb. You know, I keep hearing you say the word historical and it's something that I revere. Uh, and it's something that I think we need to to really think about. Mm. Our herbal medicines came from history. Of course. <laughs> we didn't have modern manufacturing techniques back then. The physicians of the day knew how to choose and manufacture a good herb 
Therefore, it got its standing, its use, and there are very right. few changes in that, apart from things like, you know, for instance, the leaf of ginkgo. This is where one of the things that I just admire and applaud you is remembering our history. But I've got to ask the question, how do we remember yeah. and appreciate, revere this rich herbal history? Well, I think, I think, I think there's, a, there's a good answer to that, and that is uh, our teaching institutions need to, need to balance what I consider to be, to be an overemphasis on um, chemical, phytochemical, um, if you like, um, that sort of interpretation mm. of the herb at the expense of giving credibility to the tradition. In my opinion, there has been an overemphasis on uh, trying uh, to uh, get students to appreciate the science behind the action of the herb at the expense of looking at the way in which that herb has been used historically. Mm. Now, there's a very, very good support for, for what I'm trying to say here. Uh, I frequently mention in my talks and lectures the, uh, the classic edition of Dr. Rudolf Weiss's book, yes. Herbal Medicine. Uh, it, it, it is an incredible work. Uh, I'm not sure that's a, that it is appreciated amongst us and amongst teaching institutions as it should be. But in the first chapter of Weiss's work, it gives a great defense of, of herbal medicine by saying that it is based on two pillars. One of them is certainly the modern uh, phytochemical interpretation of the herb, uh, wherever possible. But the other pillar is just as necessary, and that is the pillar of tradition, which is the empirical um, observation associated with the action of the herb, and that one is deficient if it's not supported by the other. Mm. So the moment we lose sight of the way in which a herb developed its momentum over the centuries, over the millennia, um, we are in grave danger of reducing the herb down to a phytochemical entity um, understood purely on the one or two perhaps active substances that can be found within its tissues. And that is the reason why I contend today we are producing, and this is an opinion, mm. we are producing or may be producing graduates who, in my opinion, again, and I have to be cautious in what I say here because it is an opinion based on my observation, we're producing graduates which, in my opinion, are deficient in understanding the rich history behind the action of a herb, and very, very frequently, the action of a herb still defies a modern scientific dissection. And so we are very dependent in, in some situations on looking at its history, looking at its replicated benefit, and seeing that that is sufficient to explain why, say, a viola tricolor heart disease is so useful in addressing eczema conditions, yet to try to explain the benefit of viola tricolor in uh, treating, say, atopic eczema on the basis of any uh, outstanding chemical entity would be futile. We must uh, bring with us the tradition other words, otherwise, we're going to have a whole heap of herbs that no one has an understanding of as to why we're using them for particular conditions. I guess the concern is that we can over-concentrate these herbs so that we eventually end up with something that almost resembles a pharmaceutical drug. I would say that that is uh, uh, all, all, already happening because some would say, some would say, for instance, that uh, when one is using a, a concentrate of a herb, sometimes up to a 50 to 1 strength, whether we are in fact using a herb at all. And uh, there's a good argument for saying that you are basically using a phytochemical entity. And and this worries me. I'm going to talk a lot about this at, um, at length, that many of the, uh, the solid forms of herbal preparations we are producing, some of which may have 8 or 9 or 10 um, herbal constituents, they are essentially based on very concentrated extracts of the herb, sometimes 10 to 1, sometimes 8 to 1. Do they really represent, this is a question that goes through my mind, I'm, I, I think about it a lot, mm. do they really represent the herb or are they something different? Mm. It's a question that needs to be asked. Yeah. I gather you'll be discussing this at length in your upcoming course in herbal medicine? Yes, look, I'm looking forward to, to conducting this final program, and it will be by 
final program, people keep saying, oh, I remember Dennis saying that <laughs> this was the last course he was going to do 20 years ago. Well, um, <laughs> Dennis is getting increasingly uh, uh, old. I hate to say that. Uh, and this will definitely be the last time that I will uh, teach what's called the Professional Extension Diploma Course in Herbal Medicine, which is a course that I have conducted for many, many years. And um, subsequently, uh, Southern Cross conducted it on its on its own, and it became known as the Professional Extension Diploma. It's open to all healthcare professionals. And in this, to answer your question, very very early in the piece, I go through some of these questions: What is a herb? When does it cease to become a herb? Uh, all extracts, good renditions of herbs, because at the end of the day, the benefit in or one of the benefits in practice. Uh, is based on having preparations that reliably represent the the activity of the herb and the traditional use of the herb. I'll be touching on that when I start my program <laughs> in, in November this year. You bet. <laughs> yeah. Um, Dennis, I wanted to, to go back into your history because you didn't oh, yeah. start out as a herbalist. Indeed, you were an engineer. No, so no, what, what was the draw? What was, what was the draw that took you away from becoming a you know a budding career in engineering to become a herbalist and naturopath this is a difficult question in some ways to answer and not difficult in other ways now i i don't want to turn this into some sort of uh, spiritual discussion or some or a damascus road <laughs> type of experience but i i genuinely believe that um um how can i call it I was called. Now, I know that sounds very, very spiritual and very theological. What I guess I'm saying was that there was always something there in my genes that was interested ah. uh, in plant life, um, in herbs and healing, and uh, that was the starting base. But um, the real issue came that uh, when I, as a young man, moved to Sydney from Newcastle to further my engineering studies, trying to live on my own and feed myself and do most of my study at night, uh, saw a real breakdown in my health, and what emerged uh, was a very, very serious level of eczema. And that right. really debilitated me. And uh, despite all the applications of steroids and other topical things, most of which I couldn't I couldn't handle, I wasn't getting anywhere until um, I was fortunate enough to be able to uh, live with people uh, who knew something about the application of, of herbal medicine, and I discovered a topical application which gave me great benefit, uh, which took the role or took over from using steroid preparations, and that helped, if you like, at a, at a topical level, um, get the condition under control, even while I was studying engineering. And I was fortunate enough also, uh, after having seen the benefit of a, a non-standard or unusual a herbal topical application clear up my eczema. I was also um, fortunate enough to be in Sydney at the time when um, alternative or complementary medicine, call it what you like, was in Renaissance. And, and, all, and all over Sydney, there were small teaching institutions cropping up. And um, I was there amongst it. And I did acupuncture studies and, uh, and studies with whomever you could... Uh, uh, get close to, and uh, I used to meet with the Herbalist Association at regular meetings in King Street and learn from some of the older herbalists and uh, eventually qualified um, doing their examination to become a herbalist and mm. still belong to that association. And also in Sydney at that stage, there were some very, very interesting bookshops that I frequented. <laughs> I can assure you, I still have many of them. Mm. And most of those bookshops had very fascinating works on herbal medicine in particular, and I began to gather around me uh, very interesting texts that uh, furthered this real latent interest that I always had um, until I became very, very conversant uh, with herbalism and um, felt that there, there was something in this that was more important than, than designing bridges and things like that. So eventually, um, I decided to take the plunge and um, decided to teach it at first and then carry out what we call field excursions where I took students into the field. And uh, then uh, as opportunity arose, 
on the Central Coast, a practitioner, a good practitioner, who passed away. Her practice became open and I took up the challenge and left engineering and the rest is history from there on. I practised um, herbal medicine. I want to ask a quick question. You were mentioning yes. your lecturers. Who, yes. were, who were your heroes that you learnt from regarding herbal medicine? Well, look, this might sound again a little bit unusual, but most of the um, lecturers, if you want to call them that, or it's better to use the term teachers because you have to realise that in Sydney, even in the stage of Renaissance that was beginning to occur, there were not a lot of uh, formal uh, teachers. There's certainly, I think the New South Wales College of Naturopathic Sciences was one of the first to get off the ground. And um, uh, it was one that I subsequently uh, was associated with and did a lot of lecturing for. But the people that gave me most help, interestingly, were some of the greats whose writings I collected. For instance, sitting in front of me here, and I didn't plan this, is the uh, remarkable text written by the great English herbalist Arthur Barker. Now, this book was written in 1938, The Herbal Pocket Prescriber. I still use it. Uh, Barker, uh, Eric Powell, uh, William Smith, the people that helped me most, apart from those that taught within the auspices of the uh, National Herbalist Association of Australia, the ones that helped me most were those whose writings I collected uh, and um, collected in, in great gusto, and they came from that remarkable tradition of English herbalism that I still subscribe to, the, the herbalism that these men uh, developed and practiced and made their living around. So they're, they're basically the, the men, Smith, Powell, Barker, uh, the what you might call those great herbalists in England that uh, developed herbal medicine and and saw it uh, supported and planted in in places like Australia. And you also mentioned uh, a non-standard herbal preparation. You said so. How yes. did how did you come across that, and what was it? It was a, a non-standard in the sense that um, it was not being popularly used. Um, it, 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 it came about as a result of my living next in Ashfield, living next door to a, a, a nursing couple, both fairly elderly ladies who worked in a well-known children's hospital, and they knew that I was battling with, with, with eczema. And they said, look, we have a, a topical application, a cream made up, um, particularly for uh, eczema, and it works very well. I said, well, where, where can I get it? And they said, well, there's a pharmacy in, in Dimmick's Arcade, and they make the ointment. And I said, well, what's the name of it? They said, the name of the ointment is Zema ointment, Z-E-M-A. Well, I mean, it took me years to realize that that was just meant to be eczema ointment. But um, <laughs> I made a beeline and uh, got a hold of this preparation. And um, it had a distinct odor, which later on um, I realized that, that it was based on a small percentage of pine tar, Pisces piney. Yep. Now, Pisces piney is still used a bit within dermatology. Uh, pine tar preparations are still used a little bit, but with the advent of steroid topicals, um, this sort of uh, underused or not well-known um, non-conventional preparation um, you know, is not used as much today, but it broke the back topically. Of, uh, of my eczema. It was so successful that um, my eczema for a while would go uh, into retreat as a result of applying it. A simple ointment in a, a zinc and aqueous-based cream with a very small percentage of Pisces piney or pine tar. And I still um, have preparations of my own today which incorporate uh, that uh, emphasis on using an unconventional substance like a pine tar extract, as a, as a useful antipyretic and anti-inflammatory agent, particularly useful in eczema. Now, discussing skin conditions, you know, yes. I, I would gather that you've got a bit of a, a name for treating these in your community. What are some of the common ones which you've encountered over your, I'm going to say it, decades of experience in your clinic? And I've yes. got to, I just want to ask, do you think the presentation has changed over the years? You know, great with greater stress and you know more refined foods, things like that. 
Oh, that's a that's a question that is difficult to answer because I still see the uh, same sort of skin conditions that I saw 40 years ago, and uh, I think we've we've got to be cautious that we don't overemphasize the stress and the and, and the dietary factors. They're all contributing factors, but I, I feel at times that they might be a little bit overemphasized. It, at the end of my professional life and career, I'm more convinced than ever that an attempt to always explain um, disease, and particularly chronic disease, along simple lines is fraught with problems. Right. Uh, that I see disease being based on on multifactorial things, that, uh, and, and particularly with the skin, it is so dependent for its activity or its, its its problems on not only stress but um, genetics for instance, environmental factors uh, personal factors I think a lot about it but at the end of the day uh, I really am much more pragmatic and when it comes to treating the skin I don't, don't frequently look to try to find um, the sorts of things that many might be looking at, and I would think that's a little bit disproportionately. Now, many naturopaths and herbalists might like me to say that, but I'm more pragmatic. If someone comes to me, uh, say, with an eczema condition, and I see as much eczema today as I saw 40 years ago, probably no more, no less. Um, if someone comes to me today uh, with an eczema condition, there might be one or two basic uh, dietary factors I might raise but my treatment protocol essentially is based on a pragmatic application of appropriate herbs reinforced by reputable and well-known and well-proven supportive supplements. Do you think this might be something to do with, quote-unquote, being a country folk, if you like? I've interviewed Pat Collins. I'm sure you know her. Yes, I know Pat, yes. Uh, And there's just this pragmatism for... Yes complementary medicine practitioners who practice in a rural setting. And I I think it might have to do with also the patient's demands. They haven't got time to waste around. They need to be well. Look, I think you've hit it on the head. Um, I had uh, the the privilege of being able to um, practice in Sydney for many years at Warunga in a very busy practice and saw, um, how can you call it, the typical urban uh, presentations. (laughs) and, and uh, some might say, why did you retreat uh, back to your homeland in, in Newcastle? Well, I won't go into that, but uh, country people, although Newcastle is becoming uh, less countryfied than what it was, but your point is valid. Country people and, and, and working-class people, if I use that terminology, are very pragmatic. Um, you know, for instance, if you if you say to them, look, I want you to, uh, you know, to eat this particular food and take these sorts of things and stop doing this and stop doing that, you know that they're not going to do it. Now, a lot of naturopaths and herbalists will say, oh, that's very pessimistic. Well, they can have that opinion if they want, but they need to come into the countryside or into down and out working class areas to understand what we're trying to say here. You have to bring a more pragmatic approach. Country people, working class people can't afford the multitude of supplements that are doled out, say, in the metropolitan areas uh, of of the country um, at great expense, I might say. And so we have to be more pragmatic. We have to say, what is the best that can be given to this person to give the most likely best outcome? And not always are our outcomes um, good. Sometimes we fail. And um, there's nothing wrong uh, with the, with admitting that um, a treatment may not work. Um, with experience, it's good to say that your your treatments become uh, more successful, and you're more disappointed if you uh, if you don't achieve a benefit. But um, it would be wrong to say that um, that the approach, any approach, will always give the outcome you desire. But getting back to your point, the the pragmatic aspect of prescribing um, is not just, how can you call it, a country type of uh, thing or a working class type of thing, such as 
my practice here in Cessnock is obviously dominated by working class people. They're, they're different, their expectations are different, and they come because they want you to give them a herb and preferably not too many other things to tidy up their condition. And very frequently that does the job. And if you know your herbs, if you know your herbs, you don't have to spend a long period of time dragging out from patients all this information that you think is important, but at the end of the day may not be important and may be thought by the person sitting in front of you to be a bit of a bore. So if someone if someone comes with an eczema condition, my my approach is always to treat the eczema and, and to treat it in a way that has subs- or previously shown to be beneficial uh, for many, many patients. Let's go through some of these treatments. Um, some of the more common ones, I know that you know there's an expanse and that you personalise each prescription, I get that, but um, how would you favour internal versus topical? And okay. w- you know, how, what are your favourites? Let's, let's okay. word it that way. That's a very sensible question because here again, um, uh, the purists out there might be offended when I say that I place a lot of emphasis on topical applications when many um, purists might say, oh, that's suppressing the condition. Well, I don't agree with that. And the point about it is if a, to- if a topical application can give relief to someone who's scratching themselves to death, so to speak, who can't sleep because of the, the itch uh, condition, if you've got a topical preparation that gives relief, forget about the ideology. If you can give that person relief with with natural things, go for it. And I've found the topical applications are very effective and most of my treatments would incorporate a topical application. Uh, uh, for instance, if I were to, to be managing an inflammatory condition, so dermatitis or an eczema, mm. I would uh, think of pine tar preparations. I would think of, uh, as a topical application, I would think of uh, topical applications based on glycotinic acid. Now, glycotinic acid is the active principle uh, from licorice which has been shown to have uh, sort of steroidal characteristics uh, that allow you frequently to prescribe it for patients that have hitherto been dependent on steroid applications. So I use uh, a GA cream with a 2% glycotinic acid. I use a GA complex cream, which incorporates the glycotinic acid, but a small amount of pine tar for dry, uh, chronic uh, eczema conditions and particularly psoriasis. Um, I use chickweed. I started with chickweed. I still use chickweed, chickweed oil, uh, chickweed ointment, chickweed cream to address uh, both eczema and psoriasis conditions. And I would also use uh, calendula, particularly calendula, where you have uh, lesions that uh, are slow to heal, that are reluctant to heal, and frequently are characterized by infection. I would use calendula topical applications say, in conjunction with my honey ointment in addressing uh, skin conditions such as varicose ulcers, uh, popularly or popularly, unfortunately, popularly seen in in many diabetic patients. Mm, mm. So my ointment preparations are very, very important. And in in, in some skin conditions, it is the ointment that I think uh, gives the, the, the treatment the, the, the outcome that patients are looking for. That is particularly so when one is addressing something like varicose eczema or a varicose ulcer. Um, the, the use of topicals there that I've mentioned are outstanding and have led to resolutions that uh, uh, have puzzled and surprised many medical cynics. So the topicals are important, but there again, if one is treating a, a particularly a chronic skin condition, and my belief is that this is where we shine in dealing with recurring or chronic situations. Um, essentially, the, the herbs that I structure or build my treatment around for eczema and dermatitis uh, are well-known herbs from the British Herbal Pharmacopoeia, and they would be Heartsease or Viola Tricolor, it's, or, as it's botanically named, a Stinging Nettle or Urtica, as it's botanically named. Most of my eczema or dermatitis formula formulae would incorporate those two herbs at least and then usually build around them uh, other herbs that uh, that are also indicated, maybe less so for those conditions. Uh, herbs that we all know of, herbs like the burdock and the clivers 
and the yellow dog. On the other hand, if I'm treating something like um, psoriasis, the two main herbs that I build my formula around is a specific herb called up in the British Herbal Pharmacopoeia, and that is the herb sarsaparilla, botanically known as Smilax, and I prescribe it in conjunction with a lesser-known herb, which is a very important herb, and that is the herb bittersweet, Solanum dulcamera, a very small, low-dose herb with a great reputation, again, again, very well presented in Dr. Weiss's book, Herbal Medicine, where he puts it forth as being uh, one of the major remedies used in Europe uh, to address that condition. So in, in eczema, viola tricolor and nettle, in uh, psoriasis, which I see a lot of, um, the, the, the sarsaparilla and the bittersweet, uh, supported again by other herbs from the British Herbal Pharmacopoeia that have an indication, perhaps not as specific, but an indication also uh, for psoriasis. I can still remember one of my sons having a reaction to a mango tree, and yeah. thankfully this was in summer, so a lovely cool bath with pine tar. There was nothing that yeah. gave him greater relief, and and this was I've a rash that, that yeah lasted days, and it was this was the thing that gave him the greatest relief, not the antihistamines. I frequently um, say to my patients that are uh, presenting with with very serious pruritic conditions, I will say, look there. You really need, uh, and I will frequently say, go to your pharmacy and, and, and pick it up if you can't get it anywhere else. Um, I will frequently recommend that they get a preparation that incorporates, um, a solution that is, that incorporates uh, pine tar and menthol. Yeah. And that has, in many cases, changed the uh, experience of many of my patients' uh, uh, eczemas and, um, and dermatitis conditions because, again, a lot of practitioners aren't aware that uh, that menthol, with its cooling and numbing effect, um, blended with the anti-inflammatory and anti-pruritic effect of, of the pine tar or the juniper tar, that, that that is sometimes more efficacious than even a steroid in getting rid of acute itch conditions. I emphasise that incredibly in my practice, and I'd encourage. Uh, fellow practitioners to do a little bit of reading around uh, two of these older preparations, uh, topical applications of menthol blended with, say, a pine tar, hard to beat when it's applied topically. Mm. What are your thoughts about um, the traditional uh, application of oatmeal um, for itch? And also, we mentioned chickweed before. Do you do you prefer the succus? Okay. With uh, with chickweed, it, uh, a lot of people probably don't know that it was Robin Kirby, one of my first graduates. Uh, she and I produced the first uh, chickweed ointment uh, in this country, um, and it was always based. It was always based on Priest's uh, formula. Uh, Priest uh, wrote a book with his daughter called Herbal Medications. Great work. In that book. Uh, part of its greatness is associated with the presentation of a number of uh, methods of making various creams. And in Priest's book, Herbal Medications, there is a way of making the chickweed ointment or the chickweed cream, and both the cream and the ointment are based on the juice, which is known as the sucus, and also a fresh plant tincture. Both of those constituents are used in stipulated proportions to give a preparation that, in my opinion, represents the best that one can get from that terribly underrated uh, herb to, to be used in, in both eczema and, um, and um, dermatitis and also psoriasis. In fact, some of the older writers, I think it was William Smith in his book, Wonders in Weeds, um, and let me just say something on that. A lot of people might smirk at the name of that book, Wonders in Weeds. If if one is able to get hold of it, as one still can, by William Smith, it's a remarkable text written by a remarkable herbalist on uh, the way in which simple herbs um, used in simple forms, including chickweed, um, can work work and so wonderfully. And in that text, I'm sure it was Smith. Um, I'm sure it was Smith who said anything less than using the fresh chickweed 
uh, would only would not work as well. There'd be a diminished benefit, and that sometimes is associated with herbs. That the the, the fresh herb um, brings with it constituents which can dissipate or fade in the drying process. That's not always the case. Sometimes the fresh herb is undesirable, but in some situations, particularly with chickweed. The literature in our experience has been that it's better to use those preparations which extract the fresh herb, that is the sucus or, or the tincture. You mentioned glycerotinic acid, which of course is an isolated constituent or active. Why do we use this approach instead of the whole herb? That you are isolating an active, and um, in this situation, one could say that that is a, a justifiable thing to do. For instance, we all we also um, isolate, uh, say the uh, the oil from peppermint. Gotcha. Um, we use peppermint oil. Um, so, uh, the, what we're talking about here is not. Again, it comes back to this pragmatic um, concept. How do we get the best result uh, from a herb? And in this case, it means, and this is not applied to all herbs, but to a few herbs. In this case, there's an acknowledgement that there's an overwhelming, dominating chemistry in the herb without which the herb would be would be useless. There is an understanding there is a dominating single chemical constituent which has uh, remarkable properties, and uh, in this case, it justifies the the isolation of it and the harnessing of it. One could still get... Uh, arguably a benefit from using, say, licorice extract, but one would have to use a lot more of the licorice extract to bring to bear the amount of glycotinic acid that's needed to bring about this benefit that it has on the skin. Um, put it this way, there are always contradictions mm. to the rule. This, this doesn't undo all that we spoke about earlier. It means that the pragmatism associated with herbalism and that is using the herb in the best and most economical way to get a result, it is that pragmatic emphasis that perhaps um, lessens the seeming contradiction. Just a, a quick question on psoriasis, Dennis, and, and that is um, yes. how do you prioritise a natural treatment approach versus or alongside drug therapy? Well, okay. There are some situations um, in any condition that we treat that must be acknowledged as requiring, if you like, with some of the potential problems that it brings with it, uh, an initial medical approach. If you if you have a patient, for instance, that is very, very seriously afflicted with psoriasis and who's in a in a in a desperate state, um, that is a condition that I would say requires initially to be managed by a dermatologist. Even a GP would not treat the sort of level of psoriasis mm. that um, can sometimes present uh, to a patient. In fact, frequently the best thing you could say to that patient would be, look, you really need to see a dermatologist. Your condition is out of control and it can lead to serious complications, which it can. Now, the treatment for, for psoriasis at that level, unfortunately, involves the application or the prescribing of well-known immunosuppressant-type medications and usually steroid preparations. I don't retreat from that when it's necessary. I see our role not in addressing a patient at that level, but in perhaps helping that patient whose psoriasis is under control to remain in a state of control or in a state of remission. What we try to do, I would argue, is to keep this autoimmune condition in a state of subsidence. It has been, if you like, momentarily controlled by the application of modern dermatological preparations. But in my opinion, we have a role to play in working a treatment that works against the reassertion of it by addressing the underlying autoimmune activity. Um, so where you've got that level of severity I see us perhaps backing off and waiting for the condition to improve and at that point to come in with herbs that we frequently prescribe known as the alternatives. On the other hand, if we are presented with patients that have a very limited uh, experience of psoriasis on the 
uh, typical areas where it occurs, the elbows, the knees and the scalp. Um, I feel comfortable there in these conditions, particularly where the patient presents after many, many years of having had um, these lesions. I feel very comfortable of treating that condition with, with oral herbs and particularly the ones that I've mentioned. In this situation, I'm happy to prescribe because the patient's psoriasis is at a level uh, that is amenable to our treatment and likely to respond to it reasonably quickly, reasonably quickly. Uh, and I also see our treatment as being something that works against or can work against the reassertion of a controlled psoriasis. So in, in practice these days, I'm less uh, ideological. I frequently will say to a patient, particularly with skin conditions, look, you need a steroid. You need some prednisone to get this under control, both orally and you need a steroid topical application. You need to get it under control and then let's look at how we can keep it at a level of subsidence by using a more natural approach. Many might find that offensive. I find it, again, very pragmatic. And at the end of the day, many patients will bless me for giving them that advice. Mm. Indeed, it's got to do with helping your patients. And I, 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 I wish that I had days right now to talk to you and, and draw all of that expertise out of your brain, Dennis, but unfortunately we're out of time. But I would like to sincerely and deeply thank you for your dedication to both your patients and indeed our professions. Um, and, you know, not just in education, but all that you have given to herbal and naturopathic medicine over the decades of your practice and your teachings. And I, I would just like to give you that, not just my personal thanks, but also those from your previous students. Thank you so much for sharing just a little inkling of your expertise today on FX Medicine. And I would also just give a, a, a last final thing about this graduate program. If you wish to have professional extension, I would urge all healthcare professions interested in herbal medicine to undertake this course. It's given over a weekend each two months and it's seven hours a day, right? Big course. Big course. <laughs> Big course. <laughs> I've always enjoyed teaching it and I can tell you now, I'm really fired up about teaching this final course, none of my courses are ever the same. And this course will bring together uh, my 40 years of experience and give my last thoughts on treating the body systems with herbs. Andrew, thank you so much for uh, the interview. It's been a very nice time with you. Thank you for your kind remarks. Um, I hope I haven't been perhaps um, too provocative and, uh, and um, controversial. Uh, that's part of, part of perhaps my nature, but um, it's, it's great to think about our profession, look at our roots, our traditions, where we've come from, the direction in which we're going. We're here to mm. stay, mm. Uh, but to take with us the, the, the science and the tradition together. Thank you, Andrew. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Registrations are now open for the 8th Bioceuticals Research Symposium to be held in Melbourne from the 3rd to the 5th of April 2020. To register, please go to bioceuticals.com.au and click on the Education tab.